Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. There will never be a perfect film but it's a quest and it's fine and uh, well I'm uh, somehow circling like an animal of prey around the campsite (laughs) and uh, I get a glimpse of it here and there through the foliage you see I'm trying to and I'm quoting now the French writer André Gide who famously said I'm modifying facts to such a degree that they resemble truth more than reality. And that's a very, very fine insight. Describes how I'm proceeding in filmmaking. That was Werner Herzog. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Before we get into Werner Herzog, I want to spend a second talking about something that happened in the news this past week. On Tuesday, the governor from Georgia, Brian Kemp, signed a fetal heartbeat bill that uh, seeks to outlaw abortion after about five to six weeks. Now, two things here. Um, One, I want to acknowledge at the top that as a man, I have absolutely zero authority on this subject. But I also want to add, neither does Brian Kemp, and same goes to every man in Congress that continues to make bills uh, about this issue. The second thing uh, is that I know abortion is a topic 
that is uh, very divisive. It is a very sensitive issue. And it is something uh, that people support and don't support. And I, and I understand arguments for both. And uh, the thing that I want to just contribute to this conversation is that uh, we should be having this conversation because the bill that uh, is potentially effective starting 2020, HB 481, uh, is unequivocally, factually, objectively, um, the most extreme abortion ban this country has ever seen. It seeks to criminalize uh, the women who decide to have an abortion for whatever reason. And it also seeks to criminalize those doctors that uh, offer abortions to their clients. Whatever religious or moral reasons you have uh, that make you against people having abortion, I do not hold those against you, although I may disagree with them. And I believe as a person in this country, as a person in the world with a heartbeat, that you deserve to express your views and to believe whatever you believe every single day that you exist. That said, uh, as someone who went to Catholic school, I know many folks who are pro-life, and uh, I know many of those people who, despite believing that abortion is not right, uh, could never, would never support a bill this radical. I believe you can be pro-life and against this bill. I do not think the two are mutually exclusive. And uh, if you read the, the, not even the fine print, but the print of this bill, you're going to see women that serve life sentences for aborting their child. There are so many facts um, and, and medical facts that I think everyone needs to read up on, myself included, about how many women do not even know they're pregnant within the first five to six weeks, that uh, the state is now able to prosecute women that potentially endanger their child in the act of being pregnant. That could include anything from smoking cigarettes to eating sushi. That It is that extreme. And um, I, I don't like to talk about politics on this show. I think uh, politics can be divisive, and we are in a time where nuance has seemingly been thrown out the window. But I believe, uh, personally, and, and whoever's listening can absolutely disagree, but I believe this is not a political issue. I think this is a human issue. I think this is between um, a woman and their body and their doctor. And I think only two people can really make an honest, fair, personal assessment of their situation. And that is the woman and that is their doctor. That is my view and I understand if you disagree with it. Um, but those who are on the other side of this issue, um, and even those who are potentially on my side of this issue... I really think we need to eliminate sides in this conversation. I think we need to rally around as people in the world and uh, deeply consider what we're about to do because I think that future is bleak. I think that future is Handmaid's Tale-esque and uh, I really hope Margaret Atwood's writing is not as prescient as it seems like it may become. So... Um, I, I apologize for the ramble up top, but it is an issue that is extremely important to me and, and to many people in my life, and I think it's important to all of us, and I would like to have these kind of conversations 
with people who are much more informed than I am. And we are going to work to have people on this show who are experts in medicine, who are experts in uh, law and experts in abortion that can speak uh, intimately, accurately, and, and factually on the subject. But until then, uh, I really hope uh, those listening take time out of their week to continue reading and investing in this issue. I think this is as important of an issue that we have had in this country, uh, morally, constitutionally, uh, at least that I have seen in my lifetime. So uh, we are going to have folks on, like I said. Right now, though, we have Werner Herzog on the show. I don't mean to downplay Herzog, who I uh, personally believe is one of the 10 most uh, vital, indispensable filmmakers to ever make movies. And to have him on this show uh, was a deeply nerve-wracking experience and uh, something I will cherish forever. I'm, I'm not going to introduce him. Um, you know who he is if you are listening. Uh, if you don't, please pause this episode and, and do a Google search and watch uh, any one of his films from Fitzcarraldo to Into the Abyss to Grizzly Man. I mean, there's so, so many. His most recent film that I do want to mention at the top is uh, Meeting Gorbachev. It is a long-form interview with the former president of the Soviet Union, and uh, it's one of the few times I think Herzog has met his match in a documentary setting. So uh, really do seek that out. It's in limited release now in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and a few other cities. To learn more about how and where you can see Meeting Gorbachev, be sure to visit our website at talkeasypod.com. It is a really fantastic movie. And uh, I think Herzog gets information out of Gorbachev that he has never revealed before. Um, And it's a really fascinating watch. Similarly, I hope you get some information out of this interview uh, with Herzog that you haven't in others. He does sit down with press uh, fairly regularly, I would say. But if you read those interviews in print and online, you'll notice that he kind of, you know, he's one of those people who likes to hit his stories. He knows his stories. He knows how to tell them. They have a beginning, middle, and end. He has his adages, his quips, his quotes, and he doesn't really want to deviate from that. And so for the next 50 minutes, I uh, constantly was pushing Herzog to deviate. And uh, around the seven-minute mark, he kind of relents and accepts uh, this kind of conversation. And uh, it was a real joy and an absolute privilege to sit down with him. And I really hope you find this conversation uh, as interesting as uh, I felt having it with him. So, finally, here is the one and only Werner Herzog. I just asked Werner Herzog to silence his cell phone, and I just realized you don't have a cell phone. Well, I'm one of the last holdouts uh, who doesn't like a cell phone. I'm not nostalgic, but I uh, do not like the culture of it. And by the way, everything that's important reaches me. 
I've heard you say this before, and I and I wanted to ask you this because this is also in the larger context of your filmography. Do you like or ever indulge nostalgia? Not really, because I'm very much living in the present time. I do not really look back much. I hardly ever watch films that I did decades ago. And I'm just plowing on. And uh, we are in a situation we are apparently talking about meeting Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. But I finished already two more films. Two more coming out. It's Nomad and Family Romance. Yes, Nomad, uh, which was which had its world premiere at the um, Tribeca Film Festival just a few days ago on Sunday, mm-hmm. last Sunday. And I couldn't even attend my own world premiere. And there will be another world premiere coming up uh, of a feature film called Family Romance LLC in Cannes. It's in the official selection. So I'm rotating a little bit because we have to very quickly provide... Uh, the festival with uh, French subtitles and mm. the press kit and the trailer and the poster and you just name it and we only have a few days. Do you like being that busy? Well, it came as a surprise. Nobody expected that Cannes would put it in its of- official selection. It was a surprise to you? Uh, in a way, yes, because Cannes has shown quite a few of my films, but that was back in the 70s, early 80s. But um, for, I think, the last 25 years, uh, they didn't uh, accept any of my movies. They rejected you. Why not? That's <laughs> has nothing wrong about that. <laughs> Do you take any of that personal? No, of course not. It's a festival and nothing else. Mm. There are 4,000 festivals now, but of course, Cannes is an important uh, one because uh, it is a very good platform to release a film, and more so, it's a very good platform to make world sales. There are 4,000 festivals and only a few good movies. Yes, three, four, five per year. Now, the problem is that I already created three of them. <laughs> Where's the fourth? <laughs> so there's, so you're saying this year there's maybe one or two more movies that could be good left. Beyond the three. That Beyond are, the three that are yes. yours. Of course, of course. Of course. Yes, yeah. You, you take it. You take it with <laughs> the necessary humor. I, I take People it with the humor. People always think I'm, I'm totally serious. And, I know. And it, that, that blows me away. Teutonic. Yeah. <laughs> Would you categorize, I know you're um, anti-introspection, uh, but I actually don't believe that. You've said that in an interview, but I don't believe that you are against that. But would you say that you are, at this age in your life, and after this, you know, th- the amount of films you have made, would you say that you are confident in your abilities? Uh, yes, I am, and I have been, strangely enough, I have been since my earliest days, I remember with my screenplay for Signs of Life Mm. back in 1966 or 65, I participated in a competition for the best screenplay in German language and it was also endowed with quite a bit of money. After midnight one day, there's a ring at my doorbell and I was already asleep and I stagger out and there's somebody announcing to me... uh, uh, that I won this award and I said you shouldn't have woken up after midnight for announcing this because I knew there was no other screenplay than this <laughs> of that caliber so they were completely offended and baffled uh, what what I'm trying to say of course it was a crazy statement 
but I had this kind of uh, of total confidence in mm. the caliber of the screenplay. Some people would regard that as arrogance. Of course, it is not only arrogant; it's it's outright stupid <laughs> to say such a thing. And of course, when I when I say, "Well, are the next one or two films that make up the little handful of the real good films of the year?" Of course, it. But but it's a pose of arrogance in in this case. Do do, do you feel like you had to have some amount of delusion to be a director? No, no. Uh, I'm absolutely pragmatic. I'm not delusional, uh, and I keep telling everyone you have to do the doable. And uh, for example, moving a big steamboat over a mountain in the jungle of Peru in Amazonia, um, there was hardly anyone left who would believe in uh, achieving this mm. because there's no technical precedence for moving such a huge, heavy object over a mountain. It has not happened ever before. And I knew it was doable. I knew and I had designed a, a technical way to do it. And um, almost everyone or pretty much everyone somehow gave up on it and I nobody believed in it anymore. Mm. So you have to have confidence in what you are doing but at the same time if you are delusional uh, your end will come very quickly I mean your end is a filmmaker mm. perhaps I meant delusion as in to make a film is, is a massive undertaking you have to corral the troops you have to put a bunch of pieces together that don't always work together and it is it is for many I'm talking actually for myself as someone who is directing and wants to do this as a job. It it can be daunting, though I find its daunting qualities to be exciting. Well, but that's what you do as a director. You have to have a vision that's more than anything else because a vision will dictate the behavior on the set and it will carry other people along and it will overcome the obstacles. Mm. Um, money, for example, organizations are only a natural concomitant. Mm. If you have to go back in time, you grow up uh, in the Bavarian mountains. I, I, there is a story that I have heard, and I don't. I want to be in the interest of facts because we're in a culture where there's a lot of fake news and there's mm -hmm. fictionalized truth and mythologizing and uh, imposters. Yeah, no, uh, imp many imposters yeah. of you specifically. Sure. Um, there is a moment in your childhood where, in the forest, you meet God. Did that happen? No. It was actually Christmas Eve, and in Bavaria, uh, Santa Claus is coming, but he's accompanied by uh, Ruprecht, mm. uh, some sort of a demon figure who will rattle with chains and threaten to punish you. How old are you here? I was something like three, just over three. And uh, I saw uh, Santa Claus and uh, his... Uh, Ruprecht demon figure next to him and I fled under the couch <laughs> and I was dragged out from under the couch and I knew this this was probably the end and all of a sudden there was a man in a brown overall full of greasy oily spots on it 
and he looked very, very sweetly and kindly at me. And I had the impression that was God. I was seeing God. Mm. And actually, many years later, uh, it turned out it was a worker who had maintained, had done maintenance on a small electrical plant uh, on the creek nearby. And that's why he was greasy and worn overall. But for me, absolute certainty uh, that this was God. Did you have some sort of other, I would say, enlightening experience in the aftermath of World War II where you meet uh, a black man from America? Yes, uh, that's one of my very earliest memories. memories. And it's I only remember that he was very big, a huge Wonderful man. You have to imagine someone like Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> yes. Seven foot two. Well, certainly that man was not seven foot two, but he had this kind of of absolute sweetheart. Mm. When you look at Shaquille, I mean, you that's a man you would like to have as your father. Such a sweet, wonderful, strong man. And, and this man was a little bit like him. Um, and I do remember his voice because his voice was so so kind. Mm. And my mother asked, uh, you were sitting now for three hours at the slope behind the house and you were wildly talking to him and how did you speak to him? And I said, of course, in American. <laughs> <laughs> Which you could not speak. Of course, of course not. I do not know how we made conversation. Doesn't he also give you a, a cigarette and some chewing gum? No, not cigarettes, but, but chewing gum, yes. That was my prized possession. Until your brother took it from you. Uh, that's true, and it was one of the big disasters of my early childhood. <laughs> <laughs> my brother spotted the place where I glued the, the, the chewing gum overnight. Why were you holding on to this chewing gum, by the way? Because uh, there was no chewing gum uh, in existence anywhere. It was only American soldiers would, mm. who would have chewing gum. And it, it was priceless. It was wonderful. It was a different world. Do you know when I heard that story about you and the American, I know you're a kid. and I know your mom asked you, how do you communicate with someone whose language you cannot speak? But I, I, I guess but it's... Maybe, maybe this African-American man spoke German. I have no recollection. It's totally possible because he's, he's probably serving yes. overseas and there's a chance yeah. he knows that. But let's say he doesn't for the sake of yeah, this conversation. Probably he didn't. Which then to me suggests that there is an inherent quality that, that you have that I believe is seen in many of your films where you can develop an immediate rapport with someone. I would be cautious to read too much into an early childhood incident, but you're pointing at something that uh, in a way uh, makes me a filmmaker. Um, I, I know what I'm doing and I, I, I have it in me to create an immediate rapport and sometimes you have to because you have no time and no alternative. And I'm speaking, for example, a conversation with a man who is on death row. Mm -hmm. You have no meeting before, no introduction. He will be dead in eight days. You will never see him again. And you have a very narrow, limited window to talk with. Yes, him. 50 minutes, five, zero minutes. So, 
and and from the very first moment on you have to declare yourself and you have to to know how you are handling the situation and in one case into the abyss the young man who was going to die eight days later I said to him in the first 120 seconds I tell him uh, I know <clears throat> your childhood was complicated it doesn't really exonerate you but I also have uh, read uh, some arguments of your last appeal for clemency. I sympathize with that, but it does not necessarily mean that I like you, that I have to like you. Mm. And for a second, he hesitates. The film could have been over. And he says, okay, because he's never heard anything like this. Because it was pure, raw honesty. It was exactly what I thought. And, and this young man, uh, Michael Perry, when you look at the film, he um, looks like a very nice young man. Mm -hmm. He does. He committed his crimes at, uh, eight, uh, at, at age 18, uh, died uh, by le lethal injection at 28. When you look at him, he looks nice and polite. Uh, however, and I've seen very, very dangerous men. And I've never seen a man as dangerous as him. Why do you say that? It's, you cannot express it. You take a look at that film and, and mind my word, a handsome, polite, nice young man. He upset me. And it, it was an upsetting experience. Exactly, yes. And you cannot name it. What is it? But mm. he would be the last, the very last one you would like to meet under suspicious circumstances in a dark alley. <laughs> the very last one. Mikey Perry, now from all of us, the whole team here, we would like to offer our condolences. Your father passed away. Okay, on the 10th. My yes. dad died 13 days ago. 13 days ago, Yeah, on June yes. 10th. But you will die or you are scheduled for execution so right. only eight days. Yes, sir. How are you doing? You know, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, so you know, I believe that you know, paradise awaits one way or the other. So I tell people all the time, I'm either going home or home. Do you think you have an ability to empathize with any person? Of course, if you don't have that in you, uh, uh, you would make films for robots. <laughs> we, we, that may be happening one day. <laughs> yes. But I think it's something that, I mean, I brought up... Um, Roger uh, Ebert, before we yes. spoke, you and I have only one thing in common. We actually probably have a lot in common, but one specific thing. We miss you, him, I guess. We both miss him, yes. and we both have been awarded the golden thumb for a movie playing the festival. Wonderful, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> I didn't know that you had one as well. Yes, <laughs> It happened last month. Great. Um, where do you think that empathy comes from for you? I don't have an answer. I... Uh That's who I am. Uh, I didn't learn it. I I didn't make any effort. It's just... Uh, Were your parents like that? In a way, yes. But, uh, of course, for example, my two brothers are, uh, are very different from me. They have other great qualities. My older brother is a very... The only successful person in my family. <laughs> <laughs> younger brother, fine pianist and a fine businessman and uh, he, he does stuff about uh, selling rights to yes, yes, yeah, yeah and he he runs uh, 
the practical operations back in Europe. Mm. I have a very practical question for you, which is at 19 you make your first movie. Yes. Is that right? It's yes, Her- Hercules? Yeah. Yes. I watched it this morning again. Yeah, which uh, is an embarrassment because it's it's my kind of film school. It's so full of of mistakes, but I learned through my mistakes. I think it shouldn't be published, but it's okay. Well, I'm sorry that it's out there. No, okay, it's, <laughs> it's I, out there, and and I can't. If I would have known that it. you didn't like it, I wouldn't have watched this. Morning. No, no, it's not that I <laughs> I dislike it. It was okay. I have to live with a uh, with the films I have made, and uh, not that I really dislike it, but I am suspicious, and I see uh, I see my very first uh, uh, steps as a toddler. Mm. As a filmmaking toddler, and yet there is an elegance to some of it. I will say, I, I I agree. Knowing what comes next for you, watching it, but there's also um, some sort of vision there, the vision of you that is starting. That I think, in my eyes, I thought was kind of beautiful. It, of course, it is not foreign to me what I did, but. Uh, um when I look back at it, uh, I see it as uh, as my way to learn about movie making. Mm. Movie making by doing it and learning from mistakes more than anything else. Do you think that's the best way to learn? Not necessarily, but for me it was the best way to learn. Um, others learn in film schools. I find it suspicious because I'm kind of disappointed and uh, what they are doing at film schools and not only here in the States but worldwide and this way as a concept right against it uh, as a counterpoint I founded my own uh, rogue film school I will say your approach to making movies was deeply inspirational in how I approached because I didn't go to film school either and I have found in, in the last few years just going out there and making mistakes <laughs> You never make the same mistake twice. That is true. You learn fast, and in a in a week, you learn more than uh, in three years of film school. What did your parents think about you making films at nineteen? Well, I had little contact with my own father. Uh, my mother, um, with whom I grew up, uh, uh, thought. Uh, it was okay, but she thought about a more conventional career and asked me, wouldn't it be, be good if you worked, for example, in a lab, I mean, in a lab for celluloid to learn about uh, uh, the chemistry of, of celluloid and mm. about uh, color corrections and things like that. So why don't you learn some practical things first and then make movies? But I said, no, no, I've already started uh, my own company and I've, uh, I'm just going to make films. Mm. It, it was not a surprise for, for her, for my mother, that uh, I went straight into it and rolled up my sleeves because I had been an unusual high school student. I, I left school quite often and returned sometimes only two, three months later. <laughs> From vacations that I only took, and she would protect me. And how did you get away with that? She would uh, uh, forge some sort of a medical letter that I was suffering from pneumonia. Right. 
for example. An elongated stint of pneumonia. Yes, it was a long-lasting pneumonia. <laughs> so she was very cooperative and never afraid of me, of, of what I was doing. Your mother? Never afraid. Were others afraid? No, but I did things where you should rather watch out. And for me, it was obvious I would not live until I was 18. And then all of a sudden I was 18 years old and, and it was absolutely clear and sure for me I would not live until uh, beyond 25. Mm. Why do you think that? Because I had done and seen things that were dangerous and risky and uh, I was very ill, for example, in Africa, came back, had no weight on my body anymore. Mm. <laughs> I was really, really very ill. Because you weren't eating? No, I was ill. At that time, I wanted to go to Eastern Congolese provinces a year after its independence when the country fell into complete and utter chaos. And thanks God, I fell ill in the southern Sudan, never made it across the border because literally no one survived it. Only two uh, of 40 or 50 journalists that went in there came back alive, two. And one of them, a man whom I knew later, Rija Kapuscinski, a Polish philosopher and writer and journalist, and he said to me, Werner, go to your knees mm. and thank God that you didn't get across the border. He, within a year and a half, was 40 times taken prisoner and four times condemned to death. And that could have been you. It could have been me. Or, I, I mean, nobody came back alive. So I was, I was glad that I, in retrospect, I'm glad that I fell ill. Mm. At that age, were you just interested in experiencing life in, in no, any way? No, no it's, it's not that. Uh, I was interested in a, in a more philosophical question. How is it possible that Germany, a country of very deep culture, of writing, composers, philosophers, painters, how does it happen that a country like that lapses into barbarism within a very few years? Mm. How is this possible? And consequently, how is it possible that a country like the Congo, having structures and having uh, institutions and having a fairly well-functioning police force, for example, corrupt, of course, but in a way functioning, how is it possible that it lapses into complete and utter anarchy? Did you find an answer? Uh, no, I didn't, but... Uh, Either just, a philosophical one or no, a practical no, I, one. No, I don't, I don't until today, but it doesn't matter. The, the quest to find out was formative. In a way, I feel like that is somewhat your guiding principle, right? To, to embark on a quest. Yes, go right into it and, uh, and find out yourself. Is it okay if you don't get the answers? That's totally okay, because sometimes asking a question may have more significance than getting a real answer. You have to live with questions in, in many respects in, in your life, and it, that's human. That's quite okay. It seems that the, the theory you've been developing within your films, and I think it extends to your life, is this idea of ecstatic truth. 
in a way, yes, but uh, we shouldn't waste much time in explaining it. We would need 48 hours in a long time. showing examples, but meaning meaning that uh, well, here's I, one example. I'm tired of, of uh, facts and only facts. Right. They do not constitute truth. Truth, truth is uh, illumination. Well, that's a quality of it. And nobody, by the way, can articulate and define what truth actually is. Mm. Not even philosophers can do that, nor the mathematicians. What about Rashomon? You mean the film now, the Japanese film? It's a... It's a very fine film, arguably the best ever made in history of cinema. And it's this quest of uh, uh, looking at events from all sorts of different angles. Every one of the participants um, has his or her own story. You understand that there's never going to be a full answer and i don't find it i don't find it very troublesome i feel like you seem to be fairly uh, comfortable with both creative philosophical and personal ambiguity well ambiguity is always disquieting and i try to sort things out as good as i can but at certain times you just uh, leave things as they are and they are in incomprehensible. Mm. And um, that's fine. That's fine. I was thinking, I know we need 48 hours to explain the concept of ecstatic truth, but many people listening have heard you speak on it before, so I do think there is some context for it. Do you think, as you've lived longer and have made more movies, that you have come closer to locating that ecstatic truth within your work? And within your own life? Well, I'm uh, somehow circling like an animal of prey <laughs> around the campsite. <laughs> and uh, I get a glimpse of it here and there through the foliage. <clears throat> of course, uh, there will never be a perfect film, but it's a quest and it's fine. And uh, you see, I'm trying to and I'm quoting now the French writer André Gide, who famously said, I'm modifying facts to mm. such a degree that they resemble truth more than reality. And that's a very, very fine insight. Describes how I'm proceeding in filmmaking. And my best of all witnesses is Michelangelo with his statue of the Pietà. Mm. That Jesus, the dead body of Jesus taken from the cross is a tormented face of a 33-year-old man and his mother is 17. Mm. So did he try to give us fake news? Did he try to <laughs> defraud us? Did he try to cheat us, lie to us? Of course not. That's, he, he's approaching the truth of both, of both personalities mm. and I love him for that. This is, a, 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 I feel like, a pursuit that Errol Morris seems to also be tackling. Yes, and some others as well now. There is uh, quite a few, and I'm very encouraged what I see coming from young filmmakers. So I was going to ask you about uh, uh, the younger generation, because last time we spoke, it was around Lo and Behold, yeah. uh, which is really, if you have not seen this movie, it is an excellent, excellent film. And you and I spoke about the uh, we sort of did some prognostication about 
technological involvement in, in, in future generations and the addiction my generation seems to have to the screen and to the computer and to that. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, however, about future generations of filmmakers? Well, we shouldn't speak about optimism and pessimism. We we have a much better uh, idea now that uh, filmmaking has become much uh, faster, less expensive, more accessible for everyone. You can make a feature-length documentary for $5,000 and you can make a narrative feature film for 20000 And I mean a film that will be presentable in big theaters. It is possible now, but at the same time we shouldn't go too deep into hopes of fundamental changes. Uh, on the contrary, I do believe that... Uh, our century now, the 21st, will show us a bankruptcy of certain technological utopias. Mm. The same way the 20th century has uh, given us a demise of uh, social utopias like communism, paradise on earth, um, uh, Nazism, f fascism, uh, uh, the master race that will... Uh, that will win everything over and dominate the planet. I mean, thanks God, we got rid of these uh, utopias. And there are technological utopias out there which will come to its end in this very century. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second, uh, I just wanted to remind everyone that Talk Easy is uh, an independently operated and produced show. That's just a complicated way of saying we do this for no money. We do not have a larger, uh, bigger, benevolent benefactor that finances and makes this show possible. Everyone who helps make Talk Easy is doing it because they like doing it and because they believe the kind of conversations that we have on here every Sunday are worth having. And so, if you can, we're asking those who care about this show to potentially donate any amount. You can do so through PayPal at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com and through Venmo at TalkEasyPod. To learn more about how and where you can donate, you can visit our website at TalkEasyPod.com slash donate. Every contribution we receive really does help us continue making this show, I completely understand if you cannot make a financial contribution. These are hard times we're living in right now. But even spreading the word on social media through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter helps new listeners find this podcast. Since we don't have a larger publicity arm to promote the show, we do really rely on you to uh, spread the word. So anyway, uh, thank you for helping us out. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Uh, it means the world that we have received so much support. And now, let's get back to Werner Herzog. I think in some way, uh, Gorbachev was working towards a better community in, in this yeah. kind of bigger idea. Um, you approached him as a poet, and I think this is probably why... He, he, he was happy you were not a journalist. And I, in this conversation, have hopefully tried to approach you 
not as a journalist because I'm I'm not. I have I have a question of of humanity. What did Gorbachev teach you about being a man in the world? I can't say that he would teach me something. It's only pleasant and wonderful and rewarding to um, sit together with a man of his caliber and of his depth and of his. Uh, uh, poetry and his insights and his pragmatism and his vision in political life. Uh, it doesn't teach you much. Only maybe uh, we should try and find situations where we could go back to the glorious moments of Reagan and him meeting in Reykjavik, mm. which was a moment where both sides looked beyond the horizon. Have you have you found it troubling how Americans have rewritten some of that history? No, every uh, when when you look at the Russians, how they rewrite their history, or the Germans, how they rewrite everybody. History is a figment of of constructions, mm. uh, and um, America uh, claims to have won the uh, Cold War. Gorbachev rightly so says, "No, we won, both won." We all won the, the Cold War, and I think he's right with that. And that was uh, a stunning moment in the film. Yeah, I really I watched. It's that. a deep insight, but it's and and of course, uh, <clears throat> America has been a very powerful element in ending the Second World War. But Russia had been from the very from very early on in the Second World War, and they lost twenty five thousand uh, twenty five million lives. So you have to to see the proportions, mm. and you have to see the history of Russia, and that uh, informs their worldview. And the history of of Russia is five hundred years of invasions of Mongols and Tatars and German Teutonic Knights invading and Napoleonic armies marching all the way to Moscow, the Nazis invading uh, Russia, costing them millions and millions of, of lives. Mm. So Russia has a, a worldview of uh, threat from outside, which is informed by their perennial history. And, and because of that their perspective is different. And because of that, Russia feels existentially threatened by the expansion of NATO, which has expanded all the way to their to their borders. What keeps you curious? Oh, everything. I'm, uh, I, you know, I, anything I, I that's that, coming along, I, I'm curious. You know why I asked that? Yeah. Because the, your description of your own film, but not only your film, but of Gorbachev in the larger context of this story. There is so much passion within your speech and within your movies that it is so clearly, because, you know, you have this. You've seen many filmmakers, you and I both have, that the older they get, the less inspired sometimes the work becomes, for whatever reason. Maybe it's budget, maybe it's passion, etc., have you ever found it difficult to maintain that energy? I've never had any problem with it. I'm, I'm still going pretty wild. Is my thesis <laughs> the, the off? Feature, is that, no, is that? no. That, yes, of course. Many filmmakers lose themselves in status and rituals and money and what you 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 know these people. But um, 
for example, the feature film that I'm just releasing now at the Cannes Film Festival in a few days, Family Romance, LLC, is a film that I entirely financed it out of my own pocket. Mm -hmm. And it's just rolling up the sleeves because I was so fascinated by what, what I witnessed and what I could transform into a feature film. So uh, in, in a way, I, this looks like a film like done by a 19-year-old. <laughs> no, it's, you're, you're I've, laughing. Wait, I've heard, no, I've heard about w- this. Wait for it. Wait for it. I've heard about I'm this. I'm not exaggerating. I've heard from a mutual friend of ours that it is just like this. And and it's going back to my early days. I'm sick and tired of uh, of E and O insurances that do not allow you this or that, or completion bonds that that are today some sort some form of censorship. Um, and I said to myself, I will never get a completion bond for this. So what? I'm just filming it. And you have that spirit. It has never left me. I, I you know you're catching me at a really odd time. And I am now just talking to Why? us. Well, I'm, I'm in the process of, of making this short film for um, someone. I don't want to say who because it's a little yeah, rude. Okay. And uh, it's been very difficult over the last couple of days. Um, they are they don't want to release it all the way, and they, have, they there's problems with with what I made. They don't see how it lines up with the initial vision. And I wanted to bring this to you actually. Maybe this is self-serving, but as, as someone who wants to make films, how do you power through and continue moving forward when others are saying, no, you shouldn't do that, we don't want that, you can't do that? Well, it depends on the uh, force of your vision. If you have a very, very clear idea and vision, stick to it. And you shouldn't be discouraged by voices who uh, try to dissuade you and try to not release it, just grab the film and release it yourself on the internet <laughs> you see those are glorious times now you can release your film uh, on YouTube uh, anywhere just take it roll up your sleeves and uh, lower your head and charge what is something you know now about directing at your age that you wish you knew when you were 20 21 starting out from my first long feature film signs of life which I made when I was 24, 25 or so, I um, have constantly learned, but nothing essential that came uh, in addition to what should, oh, if I just had known at that time, at that time, no, I can live very easily with what I did uh, 40, 45 years, 50 years ago. Mm. Totally fine for me. And, uh, uh, of course, I have evolved, and I have not uh, uh, stepped on the uh, uh, walked on the same spot for years and years. Of course, I have evolved. Of course, I have become older. Of course, I, I have changed uh, some subjects, but they all form a, a common worldview. Mm. I have uh, three big philosophical questions before we go <laughs> okay because we have to leave in eight minutes because you have a long day of other interviews it's okay yeah this is going to be the best one you do all day i'm going to tell you <laughs> yes uh, i agree we don't have to wait for what's coming i know this was the best i said something silly and arrogant and you said something very warm and genuine and i appreciate that the big three 
You're a man who doesn't uh, care for or need possessions. How do you live that way? Number one, I think it's a healthy attitude to deny consumerism. It's an outrage that uh, we are throwing 40, 45% of our food away. Mm. How much energy and greenhouse gases we could avoid. Does it, does it worry me? You see my shoes here. They are the only pair of shoes that I own. And sandals not, and yes. boots for yes, hiking. Yes. Correct, correct. I when when I'm in in rock three pairs, three pairs. But basically, I live with one. That's fine. I'm not interested in possession. When I moved into the United States because I had fallen in love, I gave away everything that I owned, everything, and I arrived with only what I had on my body, my clothes. I had given away my car, my money, my clothes, my books, everything. I arrived back here, and my only possession was a toothbrush. Mm. which landed me in interrogation at the at customs for six and a half hours because nobody comes without luggage entering the United States. And you did? I did. My marriage now for uh, 25 years has been like honeymoon every day. That was, uh, oddly enough, the next question. Which yes, you, okay. you have been married three times. Yes. Um, I have a question of... How have you balanced falling in love and working as much as you do? It's not as much as I do. Uh, it's sometimes the quality of work that I do. I, I had a young uh, one-and-a-half-year-old toddler son, and I rush back home uh, grabbing my passport, and I'm flying to the Caribbean where there's a volcano exploding. And my wife cannot be sure, will I return alive or not? So that that is a difficulty for married life. And what so has 25 years of marriage taught you? It's as prosaic as it may sound, maintenance, everyday attention, everyday vigilance. You you look you look at your partner and you you, you notice that something doesn't seem right. Find out, do the unexpected, maintenance, daily maintenance, a part of love. Uh, and and it it will make your marriage or your relationship a wonderful one. Women women understand that it's harder to get it across to a man <laughs> because it sounds so <laughs> it sounds very prosaic and it sounds uh, odd. There's a um, passage from the poem at the end of your film about Gorbachev that I like. It says, "I see no hope in years to come." have no regrets for things gone by. All that I seek is peace and freedom, to lose myself and sleep. Yes, it's a wonderful poem, and I have to add, uh, written by a 26-year-old man, Lermontov, I believe in the night before he died in a pistol duel. <laughs> Some of the great poets like Pushkin die very early, very young and in pistol duels. And I think it was, <laughs> looking back, no regrets. <laughs> he, he, he apparently knew he was going to die at, at six in the morning. Have you found peace and freedom? Um, that's a difficult question. I think uh, maybe not peace, but a certain serenity, which is something different. 
freedom uh, as much as I can wrestle away from all the opposing forces of uh, freedom. For example, bureaucracy. <laughs> bureaucracy is an enemy number one for filmmaker. Top and, of the list. Yes, some some top of the list. Uh, fight them back. Uh, wrestle away. Uh, from from their powers and their force of being an obstacle, um, and you will you will somehow find a certain amount of freedom. Mm. And following my vision, following my vision, and and I have absolutely no regret, not about a single film that I have made, even Hercules. No regrets. I learned from it. Mm. My final question: It's one you pose, Gorbachev. And I know intuitively you will dismiss it, but um, perhaps you could approach this question with the same sincerity in which I pose it. What should be on your gravestone? Oh, I don't care. I really do not care. Posterity can, uh, let me say it in prosaic terms, can, can kiss my ass. <laughs> I will not be around anymore. And... Number two, I shouldn't die anyway. <laughs> What should happen? I don't know. <laughs> I should somehow disappear uh, on a long trek. You know, given uh, your life and your work, that would make a whole lot of sense. Well, in a way, I, I have the feeling that uh, I wrestled away some meaning uh, of my existence, uh, for my existence. I think you've explained some of your existence in this talk. And um, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me. And best of luck to your film. You will, you will prevail and you will do it as it has to be. Werner Herzog, it was a joy. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you as well. Special thanks this week to Rebecca Fisher, Emily McDonald, and Sam Pressman. To learn more about meeting Gorbachev and Werner Herzog, you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll also find a back catalog of uh, every conversation we've had with all kinds of directors. Kelly Reichardt, Rob Reiner, Steve James, Iris Sachs, Amy Simetz, Bill and Turner Ross, uh, Sean Baker, Miguel Arteta, Julie Dash, uh, Chloe Zhao, the list really does keep going on and on. There's a good chance that if you enjoyed the last hour of the show, uh, you'll probably like at least one of those that I just mentioned. You can find all of those on TalkEasyPod.com. We're also streaming on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod, and as always... The show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our social media is by Crystal Farmer. 
Our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Uh, I'll see you next Sunday with Pam Greer. And for now, here's a song to play us out. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.